Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You cannot be saved apart from faith, but you also cannot be saved apart from repentance. They are two sides of the same coin. They are not mutually exclusive, but they go together. There is no such thing as true saving faith apart from repentance. That is to be a libertarian. That is to be antinomian. And there is no such thing as repentance apart from faith, because that is to be a legalist. You must have both faith and repentance in order to get into the kingdom of God. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and be turning again to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6. And uh, last week we began looking here at uh, verses 7 through 13. And I've included verse 30 of chapter um, 6 in that as well. A message that I entitled, Sent to Serve, that became increasingly aware to me as I preached the sermon last week, that it was not going to be one sermon, but two. So we find ourselves in part two this morning. I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 6, let me begin reading in verse 7. I want to read through verse 13 and then also verse 30. Hear the Word of God. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then verse 30 says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is the living word of God. Please be seated. Let us ask the Lord for his help. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the instructions that we have here coming from the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that these words are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that we do not read merely the words of man, but we read the very words of God. And as we study this text, we pray that your Spirit would enlighten our eyes and enlighten our hearts to understand all that you would instruct us in this morning. We pray with great confidence that you will teach us. And Lord, we pray with great confidence that you would even draw your sheep to yourself who are yet converted as the gospel is proclaimed. We know this because of the authority and the power of your word, and we thank you ahead of time for what you will do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This next section of John's gospel, as I mentioned last week, is really a a new section as um, Mark writes about the life of our Lord. Mark is really emphasizing the power of the kingdom of Christ and the power of the kingdom of Christ on display before our eyes. We've already seen the miracles that Jesus has performed. We've seen that Jesus was so popular at this point that literally thousands of people would come to hear him preach. They were mesmerized by his sermons. They were mesmerized by his Words because he spoke as one who had authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. There had never been, and there has never been, anyone who has walked this earth in human flesh that had as strong of an aura and as strong of a a power and a presence than the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only in what he said, but also in what he did. 
But as we move into this new section, we see that all the things Jesus said and did are now transferred to the apostles. Jesus, in essence, is passing the baton of leadership to the apostles before his death. I saw this past week on social media, one of my friends who pastors in Geneva, and he is coming to the end of his ministry, and he had his elders stand with him before the congregation, and he stood alongside of them on one side of the platform with a baton in his hand, and the next man in line to pick up the reins, as it were, in ministry stood on the other side of the platform. And as he handed the baton to the new pastor, the elders transferred their allegiance to this new pastor and stood on the other side of the platform. That sort of imagery is sort of what is happening here. Jesus is not dead yet. Jesus is not giving away all of his authority yet. But there is a transfer of power. There is a transfer of leadership. As you remember from Ephesians chapter 2, the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone. And the people will stumble over the cornerstone Jesus. They will stumble over Him. They will crucify Him. He will be resurrected. He will ascend. He will pour out the Holy Spirit. And as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built, it will be built by the authoritative preaching of the apostles and even by the signs and the wonders that the apostles perform. This is the beginning of that sort of thing taking place here. It's also important to remember that there were 12 patriarchs of Israel, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and there are 12 apostles. That clues us into the fact that for all intents and purposes, ethnic Israel is dead in the eyes of God. There needs to be a spiritual resurrection Because Israel is so apostate, you can see it even in its leadership of the scribes and Pharisees who have reduced salvation to works salvation, to legalism. Not the sort of salvation that was preached to their father Abraham, where Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So Jesus is beginning with a new leadership. A new 12 is coming. The church will be established upon the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. Now, there's something else taking place in this passage that I mentioned last week. Mark does not simply write from his memoirs the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Mark wasn't even an eyewitness to many of these events. His primary source is the apostle Peter. And so as Mark writes and he gathers his data, he is very careful to write with theological precision. And what he gives to us in this passage is another one of his, what scholars call, Markan sandwiches, where he provides a, a passage or a set of verses which serve as one theological piece of bread. And then on the end is another passage, another theological piece of bread. But in the middle is the meat. Well, the meat of chapter 6, is not the sending out of the apostles, and it's not the return of the apostles. Those are the two pieces of bread. But in the middle is the death of John the Baptist, a passage that we'll begin looking at next week. And what is Mark's point? His point is that as Jesus sends the twelve out and as they return, what happens in the middle is the death of John the Baptist, the greatest and last Old Testament prophet, because... All the apostles are going to suffer for proclaiming the gospel. All true disciples are going to suffer for proclaiming the gospel. We will follow in the steps of John the Baptist. We will follow in the steps of the apostles. And although we all won't be martyred, and although we all won't be persecuted unto death, we must have courage, and we must have zeal, and we must have perseverance, and we must have persistence, because the message of the gospel that we proclaim will be rejected by many people. And yet, in spite of all of that, there is this element of hope, because as the apostles go out, and they proclaim the gospel, and they heal diseases, and they cast out demons, what you see is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this world. And we are some 2,000 years past 
the foundation of the church being laid. We are in a period of time in which the gospel of Jesus Christ has been spread abroad throughout this world. We find ourselves in a very exciting period of church history in which we are not on the ground level, but we are several floors up, closer and closer to the full reign and rule of Jesus Christ over this world. So as we look at this passage, we have to keep those things in mind. Some of the stipulations that Jesus gives to the twelve as He sends them out, some of them no longer apply to us. But there are many basic principles that do apply to the New Testament church, and it's been our duty to draw those out as we look together at the epistles to help provide some clarity on some of the somewhat strange things that Jesus says as He sends the twelve out. So what we said was that in Jesus' ascending of the twelve, there are some basic principles for the contemporary church regarding ministry and the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. And there are six principles in total that we want to look at. Let's review the first three quickly, and then we will look at the last three. The first basic principle that we see here. For effective church ministry and the advancement of the kingdom of Christ in the world today is what I called a providential commissioning. We see it in verse 7. He called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now Jesus is calling the twelve to himself. They've already been regenerated. They've already been recruited. But now he is sovereignly releasing them to go and to proclaim the gospel. Mark doesn't say they proclaim the gospel, but Luke does. And we are whole Bible Christians. So if there's something that Mark doesn't mention, there's a very good chance that one of the other gospel writers has mentioned it. And Luke would be that gospel writer. He says in Luke 9 verse 2 that Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, that was the primary thing they were doing. This was not some healing crusade as much as it was a preaching crusade. And we know that if you just skip down to verse 11, because Jesus says, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then you are to leave. The idea is you are going to use your voice to proclaim the kingdom of God. Your goal is to save sinners from hell. Your goal is to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel through all of the cities and the towns and the villages to preach in the synagogue just as Jesus had done a few verses before in Nazareth and to call sinners into the kingdom by requiring them to repent of their sins. As a matter of fact, that's what verse 12 says. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Repentance is a summarized way to speak about what is necessary to get into the kingdom of God. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You cannot be saved apart from faith, but you also cannot be saved apart from repentance. They are two sides of the same coin. They are not mutually exclusive, but they go together. There is no such thing as true saving faith apart from repentance. That is to be a libertarian. That is to be antinomian. And there is no such thing as repentance apart from faith, because that is to be a legalist. You must have both faith and repentance in order to get into the kingdom of God. And the apostles preached both. But oftentimes in Scripture, to emphasize the necessity of turning from sin, when it speaks about the gospel, and it speaks about entrance into the kingdom, it speaks about repenting. And that's exactly how this passage speaks of it. There is a note here of urgency, isn't there? Of turning from sin as the apostles go out in verse 7, two by two. They've been providentially commissioned by Christ to go out two by two, and they've been given authority, as verse 7 says, over the unclean spirits. As we saw, the unclean spirits is a reference to demons. Jesus has cast out many demons at this point. He cast out 6,000 demons in one man in an earlier passage that we looked at. Now, this is not what we could say the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning. 
The apostles are the foundation of the church, and they are going out to proclaim the gospel. They are going out to cast out demons. As the light of God's kingdom comes into the world, demons scatter like roaches. And as more and more gospel is preached, more and more light comes into the world. There is more light in the world today than there was, believe it or not, even in the days of Christ. Because even though He is the light of the world, He is sending out the apostles two by two. And the point of this passage is that all Christians have been commissioned to proclaim the gospel. The church has one commission. It's to proclaim the gospel. It's to shine the light of the gospel in this dark world. And the more Christians there are, the brighter the light shines. There is a note here of urgency. There is a note here of multiplication. There is a note here of hope. And so the apostles are sent out two by two which is also a reminder to us as we looked at last week of the importance of companionship and the importance of the church being united in their gospel message. Now, two preachers are better than one. Two Christians are better than one. And so Jesus is sending them out. And one of the signs that the message that they were preaching truly came from God was the fact that they were able also to cast out unclean spirits, that is, demons. Jesus has shown His authority over natural disasters, physical diseases, supernatural demons, and now He transfers that power to the apostles. We don't have the power to cast demons out today. That was a sign that was given to the apostles that passed away when the apostles died, when the canon of Scripture was complete. There was no indication in the New Testament epistles when Paul deals with all the issues in the churches and in the sin-stricken communities that these newly planted churches found themselves in. No indication whatsoever that pastors, pastor teachers, elders, deacons were given any authority to cast out demons. There's no mention of that whatsoever because those sign gifts have passed away. But when the foundation of the church was laid with the apostles, there was that sign given as a testimony to confirm the validity of the truth that was being preached. Now, I just want to say this in terms of the providential commissioning of Jesus Christ to the church. There are no longer apostles today. And not everyone's called to be a pastor teacher, and not everyone's called to be an elder. Not everyone's called to be an officer in the church. But the point of this passage is not church government. The point of the sending out of the twelve, when you look at redemptive history, is to show that they were the foundation of the church. But we are all disciples of Christ, aren't we? We have all been sent. We have all been commissioned. And so, in principle form, what Jesus says He is saying to all Christians, Matthew 28 is basically a carbon copy of this passage. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Baptize the nations. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That providential commissioning was given not just to the apostles, but to all Christians. So it matters not if you are a pastor or an elder. It matters not what your gifting is. What matters is that you are part of the body of Christ and you are called to serve. I love what Calvin says, and he's not commenting on this passage, but he says this just in commenting on the church. He says that the highest honor in the church is not government, but service. Not church government. Whether you serve as an officer or an elder or a pastor, but service. Because we are all called to serve. And that is a basic principle that we take from this passage. But we also saw there is a second principle that allows a church to be effective in ministry and advance the kingdom, not only a providential commissioning, but number two, a prepared commitment, verses 8 and 9. It says that he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now just quickly, because we looked at this in some detail last week, I think that there is an echo here of Exodus chapter 12. 
the nation of Israel being delivered on the night of the Passover. And as they ate that meal, they had their staff in their hands. They, they had their sandals on their feet. They left in haste. They left with urgency as God was delivering them from their bondage to the Egyptians. And there's a note of urgency in this passage. The apostles must be ready with their sandals on their feet, their, their staff in their hand. They must be ready to go at a moment's notice, trusting in God, no money, no bread, no bag. They aren't to be beggars. Preachers are not to be beggars of money. They're to depend upon the Lord. The apostles were to trust the Lord as they went and proclaimed the gospel because it was God who was delivering them. Just as God asked the Israelites to trust Him on the night of the Passover, follow these procedures Very detailed procedures in Exodus 12. Be ready to go when I tell you to go, and then go. Trust me. Even though Pharaoh has great strength, and God delivered them. Jesus is saying there's a new Exodus with the preaching of the gospel. A deliverance of our souls from the bondage of sin. A deliverance of ethnic Israel from their bondage to legalism. And the false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, which preach no gospel. The apostles must go throughout all these towns and villages of the Jews and deliver them through this new Exodus, this new Passover. Now, we also saw last week in Luke chapter 22 that on the night that Jesus was betrayed in the upper room, Jesus said these words, picking up in verse 35. He said, When I sent you out, with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? He's referring back to to Mark chapter 6 and the sending out of the 12. And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So Jesus actually alters his commissioning to the apostles on the night that he was betrayed. This is not a contradiction, but it is to remind us that as we read the Bible and interpret the Bible... We have to be very careful of the verses that we read and how those verses apply to us. Otherwise, we might think we have the power to cast out demons and heal people. Jesus is saying the stipulations have changed. I sent you out with no bread, no bag, um, no money in your belts because I was trying to prove a point. I was leaving the training wheels on. And you're training as disciples because you've had a hard time trusting me. You've had a hard time having faith in me. I mean, there was a guy who had 6,000 demons who confessed me to be the son of the Most High God. And even you disciples in the boat on the night I, I delivered you from the storm, even you wouldn't confess that verbally. Oh, you disciples of little faith. So you need to learn and trust me. But now they had learned and trusted him when we get to the upper room. And so Jesus says, now these stipulations have been been completely changed. So we see here a sort of prepared commitment that is involved in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If our commission is to proclaim the gospel, we have to be prepared. And what does that mean? Very simply, it boils down to two simple principles that we went over last week. Number one In order for a church to be effective in gospel ministry, there has to be the faithful giving of tithes and offerings. There is implicit in this passage a certain dependence upon the Lord by the apostles, but don't miss the fact that their dependence upon the Lord is contingent first and foremost on their contingent or their dependence upon the Lord's people. That they weren't to take with them two pairs of sandals, only one. They were only to have one staff. They weren't to take any bread. They weren't to take a beggar's bag. No money in their belts because it was assumed that they would depend upon the people that they were ministering to. And such is true in the church today. An effective church ministry cannot be successful apart from tithes and offerings. But then the second principle to learn from that is that a church needs to be very careful not to make money the focus and the emphasis. Because that is the emphasis uh, in the world of the prosperity preachers, isn't it? 
where they really distort the Word of God, constantly begging for money. And oh, by the way, claiming they can heal you if you give the right amount of money, claiming they can cast demons out, completely distorting this passage. So we can even learn things regarding the church today about this matter of giving, the giving of tithes and offerings, and the receiving of tithes and offerings with a humble heart, using that money for the service of the kingdom and for the glory of God Almighty. And that led us then to a third principle that we saw in this passage. Not only a providential commissioning, a prepared commitment, but also a purposed contentment. Verse 10, And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So as the apostles went out two by two, literally in the Greek, as verse 7 says, duo, duo, They went out in dynamic duos to proclaim the dynamic gospel. They weren't to stay in hotels and resorts. They were to stay among those who would receive them. They were to stay into the homes of those who would provide for their needs. Now again, these are temporary stipulations um, to teach the apostles to depend upon the Lord and to depend upon the Lord's people. But it's very specific here that the apostles were to be content in what God had providentially provided. Whenever you enter a house, you're to stay there until you depart from there. It's as if Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how bad the food might be, are you being fed? Then stay there. Be content with that. Trust the Lord. It matters not if you're sleeping on a floor Or a mattress. If those people have provided that for you, then you trust the Lord. And you sleep and you rest in His sovereignty. You aren't to pull your beggar bag out and beg for more money. You aren't to go from house to house and solicit funds. You aren't to go from house to house and try to network with people and climb your way up as if this is some kind of social thing. And I just want to say what I said last week, but maybe even a little stronger and a little harsher. There is far too much politics in the church world today. There is far too much social and not enough spiritual. There are far too many preachers that are trying to climb the corporate ladder of ecclesiology instead of just preaching the Word of God. There are far too many preachers that don't depend upon the Lord. They depend upon what they can get from other people. And so instead of preaching the truth, they cater to people and they tickle their ears and they fill their pockets. And all the while, there are souls that are dying and going to hell because there is no integrity. There is no truth. There is no courage. There is no willingness to stand up for what is right and proclaim the true gospel because ministry has become a game. And Jesus is telling the apostles, don't you dare act like the scribes and Pharisees. They begged for money. They filled their pockets. They didn't teach the truth. They loved the honored seats in the synagogues. And they taught a works-oriented salvation. Make sure that your message matches what you preach. Make sure you have integrity. Make sure you are content and what the Lord has provided. Now, now that is a message that applies even to the church today. And it applies in the financial realm, but it also applies in the spiritual realm in this sense. We are to be content as Christians in what God has given us. We are to be content as Christians with the church God has blessed us with. We are to be content as Christians with the spiritual leadership God has placed over us. We are to be content as Christians with the spiritual gifting God has given us in this place. We are to be content with that. We are to trust in Him. We are not to look and say, well, the grass is greener on the other side. We're just saying, no, Lord, these are the people You have given us. These are the people You have blessed us with. These are the gifts You have given God's people. This is the money that we have. This is the opportunity we have. And we will charge hell with a water pistol... And we will work for the glory of God until we take our last breath. Because, Lord, this is where you have placed us. And this is where we will go because this is where you have sent us. 
Remember, God has sovereignly called the apostles to himself, and now he is sovereignly sending them out. And if you are a Christian this morning, praise God, he has sovereignly called you to himself. You would not be here if he had not sovereignly drawn you to himself. But that is no excuse to then apathetically sit and not be sent and not go. Because whether you recognize it or not, you have been sent. And as we are going to see as we come to the end of this passage, to the degree that you obey the Lord with what He has given you, the resources He has provided for you, the opportunities He has given you, until you become content with that, you will never do anything for the glory of God and for the success and the advancement of His glorious kingdom. Well, more could be said, but let's move on now to the fourth principle that we find in this passage. Principles that I think apply to the contemporary church today for effective ministry, the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Not only a providential commissioning, a prepared commitment, a purpose contentment, but number four, listen to this, a proclaimed condemnation. A proclaimed condemnation. There needs to be a a sense in which the church is so serious about the message we proclaim that we make it very clear to the world that this is not a game. We are to love the world. We are to serve the world. But we are to love the world so much that we are not to be afraid to tell the world that they will go to hell if they do not turn to Christ. And that is exactly what Jesus mentions next. Notice verse 11. He says, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Now, as verse 11 says there, any place, that would be any village, any town, that would not receive them, remember that they needed to stay in the homes of others. So if they went into a a town that would not receive the gospel message and didn't invite them into the homes for them to get to know them and, and to love them and to share the gospel with them, They would not listen to their message, as verse 11 says. Jesus says, then when you leave, you're to shake off the dust that is on your feet. And this obviously was not something Jesus just made up on the spot, because Jesus himself had done this. If you skip back up to verse 5, this is Jesus in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, when he preaches there in the synagogue, and he says to them in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, in his own household. They had rejected the message of the gospel he had preached in his own hometown. In the synagogue he grew up in, so verse 5 says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. Now notice this, he went about among the other villages teaching. Now I don't know if Jesus literally picked his sandals off his feet and shook the dust off, but he certainly metaphorically did. There's no record in the Bible that indicates he ever even returned to Nazareth as a sign of judgment. Upon them. And now he is telling the apostles to do the same exact thing. Now, as I said, we need the help of the other gospel writers to provide a little bit of clarity. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 because there is a fuller, I guess you could say, explanation to this. Luke chapter 10 in his account, picking up then in verse 10. Same situation. Jesus says, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say. So don't don't just leave. Make a point about your leaving. Make a statement. There have been times in my life where I have said, in a church service and heard falsehood and stood up and walked out. And I did it with my wife 
and my kids to make a statement that this is false and not worth listening to. Now, don't you dare get up this morning. (laughs) But that's what the apostles were to do. Whenever you enter a town, they do not receive you. Go into its streets and say, this is a scene. Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we will wipe off against you. That's pretty in your face. Nevertheless, know this. The kingdom of God has come near. What's the point? In ancient times, when a king would conquer other kingdoms, other countries, other regions, the king would send out a notice that says, we have conquered you and delivered you from your previous king. Now submit. You are being annexed to the greatest kingdom that has ever come. And if you submit to your new king, you will be blessed and protected and preserved. This is the history of the world. The apostles, by saying, we're going to shake the dust off our feet and we're going to go elsewhere, was another way of saying, okay, you don't want to submit to the king, you now no longer have the protection of the king. Judgment is now upon you. It's also important to note that Jews, when traveling around, customarily shook the dust of pagan lands off their feet. They would try to avoid Samaria. When they were going from northern Israel to southern Israel, they'd go around the long way, but sometimes if they passed through before leaving Samaria, they would shake the dust off their feet to prevent contamination. Not so much to free them from physical pollution, but to make a point that they were the separated, elect people of God, and they they wanted to be free from spiritual pollution. It was a sign of judgment. A symbol based upon a reaction. Now for the apostles, if they did not receive the message preached, if they were not listened to, if the gospel was rejected, as verse 11 says, they were to leave, shake off the dust that was on their feet as a testimony against them. A sign of God's judgment. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, I actually think that this is not a temporary stipulation, but one that is to be carried forward because we read in multiple places that the apostles continued this tradition of shaking the dust off their feet. For example, the whole word of the Lord was spreading throughout the region. We read in Acts 13, and the Jews of that region incited the devout women of high standing, the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, drove them out of their district. And verse 51 of Acts 13 says, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. So, If the people of Pisidia were not going to listen to the apostles, they would go to Iconium. And then on from there as a testimony against them. Now, remember that Jesus has Jewish apostles. Don't forget that. He has Jewish apostles. Not only that, but Jesus is... First and foremost, preaching the good news to Jews. It's where the gospel begins. In Matthew's account of this same account in Mark, in Matthew 10, verse 5, it says that these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, listen to this, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
For the first time in the history of the world, you have Jews, namely the apostles, shaking the dust of Jewish towns off their feet. Very significant. Very significant. They weren't even to go into Gentile towns. They were to go into Jewish towns, again, because these symbolic actions reminded the lost sheep of the house of Israel that apart from Christ, it didn't matter how much Jewish blood ran through their veins. It didn't matter how many sacrifices they offered. It didn't matter how many of their males were circumcised. Israel was dead to God. They needed a spiritual resurrection. And that could only come through Jesus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And if you do not believe in him, you will die in your sins, Jesus said. And Paul would borrow this principle in Romans 9, 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So a new Israel with a new exodus and a new Passover with a new lamb would take away the sins of the world. And it would not just be the sins of God's remnant among the ethnic Israelites, but it would be even Gentiles. Because when the lost sheep of the house of Israel would repent, that would be the nucleus of the church from which then the apostles would go forth to the Gentiles. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. You begin in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and the remotest part of the world you are to go. And as they go, again, what is the emphasis of their ministry? It's not healing. It's not casting out demons. Notice verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That they should repent. We don't just tell people that they are going to hell. We tell them that Christ can take them to heaven if they repent of their sins. But if they do not repent, there's no hope. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, because our Lord comes. This was a sign of judgment to the lost sheep of the house of Israel who refused to repent of their sins, repent even of their righteousness and their legalism, and come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews tells us, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? exactly what these ethnic Jews were guilty of. A Jewish town geographically fitting within the bounds of God's covenant people could actually be full of strangers to the covenant. They needed Christ's blood, His atonement, to save them. And I want to speak a moment to you as parents, to the children of this congregation that I can think of no worse judgment of God than to be part of a home where the gospel is preached, where you are urged to repent of your sins and place faith in Christ. And yet, in that very home in which you are reared and loved and raised, you are a stranger not only to your parents, but to God Himself because you reject the gospel that has been preached to you. You too must repent. Baptism does not save you. Church membership does not save you. Only Christ saves you. Religious pedigree does not save. And the faith of parents does not save. And anyone who believes that doctrine and teaches that doctrine is not a true Christian. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And do you remember I mentioned when we looked at Jesus being rejected from Nazareth and He left and He went to the other towns and villages, I said 
that I thought that was not only a sign of judgment upon them, but it was also a sign of mercy. Because the more that Jesus preached the gospel to those in Nazareth, and the more they rejected it, the more judgment would come upon them. Just like the citizens of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, their judgment was far worse than even the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah because they rejected Christ. And I tell you that because we don't tell any sinners, go to hell. We may tell them they are going to hell unless they repent. But we don't tell them go to hell. We tell them come to heaven. Repent while it is time. Our hard message of the gospel must be tempered with soft appeals of urgency. This is not the shaking off of the dust of our feet, riding off the world, going and living in some secluded place where we're disattached from the world and telling the world to go to hell. Not at all. This is a testimony of God's judgment. That we will stand on the street corners with our sandals in our hands, shake off the dust and say, listen, hear ye, hear ye, the kingdom of God has come near. And unless you repent of your sins and place faith in Christ, you will go to hell. So come to Christ. Be reconciled to Him. Bow the knee to the King before it's too late. That's what the apostles did. That's what Paul did. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When was the last time you begged a non-believer to come to Christ. I didn't ask you, when was the last time you told a non-believer all the reasons they were going to hell? That's easy to do. What's hard to do is to love an unbeliever created in the image of God and with tears in your eyes, plead with them to come to Christ before it's too late. It is the latter sort of evangelism which is biblical. Because it reveals the love of God in your heart. And it reveals the fact that you care about the glory of God above all things. Not just trying to win some false convert over to have another notch in your belt. Biblical evangelism comes with tears and with pity. And I don't know if it's true, but I imagine the apostles weeping as they shook the dust off their feet. Weeping for those lost souls and weeping because glory was not being given to God. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus Himself wept over Jerusalem with tears of sorrow. And that leads us now to the fifth principle, which I, I, I think just naturally follows. Verse 13 it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Providential commissioning, prepared commitment, a purpose contentment, a proclaimed condemnation, and a personal compassion. A personal compassion. They went out and ministered to people. This required them to know people, be in a relationship with them, to say, I can help you with that. Let me cast those demons out. I mean, I've never said that, but it would have been something like that. Let me help you with that. You're sick. I have the power of God. Come near to me. I will touch you and anoint you with oil. That's very personal. This is not the apostles separated from the world. This is the apostles throwing themselves into communities. Pleading with people to repent. Ministering to them physically. Serving them. Because listen to this. The church is an institution of the Word first and foremost. We are a mouth house for God. We proclaim the Gospel. 
But the church is not just an institution of word. It's also an institution of works. Because although we don't have the signs gifts, all the works we do give credibility to the message we proclaim. It shows our sincerity and our compassion. That's what the apostles did. It says they cast out many demons. There's one more note about this. Flip with me to uh, Mark chapter 9, just quickly, and verse 18. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit because the apostles can't. And this comes after he gave them authority to do it. Verse 18, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So this authority came and went for the apostles. There are no longer apostles today. And even when the apostles existed or on this earth, they didn't always have the authority to cast out demons. Again, a reminder to us that these signs gifts have passed away. They were already passing away before we get out of the Gospel of Mark. But notice what else they did. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Again, the healing and the casting out of demons, temporary only to the apostles as signs to validate the gospel. But also, oil was used medicinally. It was believed to have medicinal value. Whether it did or not is debatable. It certainly has the ability to soothe, particularly if it is mixed with different extracts from different plants different aromas, myrrh, things like that. As a matter of fact, they used to to box oil in an alabaster box to preserve the scent that could last for literally a century or two. That's the same type of oil or perfume that Jesus' feet were anointed with. We don't know what kind of oil this is, But I don't think they're using it medicinally because the whole thrust of this passage is spiritual. I think this is a symbol. The apostles were not doctors. They are applying oil, not in a medicinal sense, but a spiritual sense. In fact, just turn in the New Testament to the book of James in chapter 5. I know you're familiar with this. But I even think it's okay for elders who are not apostles to anoint people with oil. Because verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? James 5.13, Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So even... In our own day, there is this care and compassion from spiritual leadership, praying over, anointing with oil, the sick of the church, the oil being symbolic, never being a healing agent. That's not why elders today use it. That is not even why the apostles used the oil. They didn't need the oil. So why did they use oil? I'll give you one passage, Psalm 45. Turn back to Psalm 45. I'll mention other passages, but I'll give you one that gets right to the point. Psalm 45. And uh, verses 6 and 7. The psalmist says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This isn't physical oil. This is symbolic oil, the oil of God. The oil of gladness, as the psalmist calls it. The blessing of God because the kingdom of God 
has come upon His people. The kingdom of God was breaking into the world. And so the apostles are using oil to say, here is your physical ailment. The power of God will deliver you. So in fact, the oil was to be a distraction from the human apostles as if to say, don't look to me and my power, look to God and His oil of healing. And by the way, in the Bible, oil was used to prepare dead bodies for burial. And I think that maybe one of the reasons the apostles used oil was not only to say, Don't look to me, look to God. This oil, this blessing of healing comes from God. But it was also to say, as I rub and anoint you with this oil, you do understand that I am preparing you for your inevitable death. Because although you have been healed physically, you need restored spiritually. And as they're anointing, they're preaching and pleading for those sinners to come to Christ. It is interesting to me, the Roman Catholic Church has the rite of extreme unction, which is administered when death is expected. But amazingly, the apostles use this oil as if to say, we expect life for you, not death. If you believe, if you repent of your sins, and come to Christ. Just ask the simple question, where is our compassion for the lost? We have heroes. Many of you have been in my home study. And if you've come into my home study, you've seen the pictures on the walls. And I try to stump you and ask you if you can name the theologians on the walls. Sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you can't figure one person out. And you say, Pastor Andrew, who is that? Who's the guy with the white wig? Oh, that's George Washington. No, that's Jonathan Edwards. These people that are bigger than life. The apostles are bigger than life. Bold, courageous. Willing to die for the gospel. Were full of compassion. They looked real people in the eyes and rubbed oil on them and pled with them to come to Christ for salvation. That is compassion. And that is what God has called the church to do. And if the church is known for proclaiming the gospel and not having compassion, it removes the oil that lubricates the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to really work in a community the way that it should. We are whole Bible Christians. So as we proclaim the gospel, we show personal compassion because we've been saved to serve. Well, let's close with verse 30. We come to the sixth principle. These verses remind us of some basic principles to be effective in church ministry, to advance the kingdom of God. We saw in verse 7 a providential commissioning. We've all been sent. Verses 8 and 9, a prepared commitment. Verse 10, a purpose contentment. Verses 11 and 12, a proclaimed condemnation. We have to be willing to speak the truth. But we speak it in love. Verse 13, a, a personal compassion. Now, number 6, verse 30, There is a practical culpability. A practical culpability. Notice, the apostles just didn't go out and do this, and then no one ever knew how it went. Notice verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. All that they had done and taught in service for their Master. Again, notice the comprehensiveness of this. They told Him everything. There was full accountability, full culpability and responsibility. Both words and deeds. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done, that is their works, 
and all they had taught. That is their words. They were not just the voice of Christ. They were the hands and feet of Christ. And they would be held responsible for the way they dealt with sinners. Did they have compassion? Did they serve? Did they proclaim the gospel? They'd be held responsible for their orthodoxy and their doctrine. There's culpability. This is like standing before Jesus pre-judgment day. They gave an answer to him. This is so critical. Because there are checks and balances in the church. You are obligated to submit to your spiritual leadership, but your spiritual leadership is obligated to submit to God and all elders will be accountable before God, just as the apostles. What does Peter say? He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Peter was an elder too, not just an apostle, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Yeah, there's authority, but not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. You answer to Him, not for shameful gain. Don't be a beggar, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. We could say in word, orthodoxy, in work, orthopraxy. And both our declaration and our duty. And both our sermons and our service. And both our teaching and our willingness to love and be compassionate. Why? Listen. Because when the chief shepherd appears, you, if you're faithful, will receive the unfading crown of glory. There will be accountability for all spiritual leadership. Not only that, There will be accountability for all Christians, right? We will stand before Christ and give an account. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Romans 14, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, Paul says to the church, each of us will give an account of himself to God. There's a practical culpability. That provides motivation to serve. That's all the motivation you have to serve, that you'll have to answer to Jesus and report back to Him, should be enough. Should be enough. You don't have to wait for God to call you to serve, because if you're a Christian, He's already called you to serve. So we don't wait. We say, here am I. Send me. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to minister to? Be burnt out for the sake of God. Because only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, and joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. That must be our prayer. And that must be our heart. And if we are true Christians, it will be. It will be. To Him be the glory. Let us pray. Father, thank You.
for the compelling words of Mark and our Lord and the Holy Spirit. Lord, to remind us that we've been sent to serve. Forgive us, Lord, for living this life for ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, for being so preoccupied with things that don't matter. Help us, Lord, to see the sense of the moment, the sense of urgency, Lord, for us as individuals, for us as a church. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us, Lord, with the gospel and with your grace. Forgive us where we fail to serve you as we ought. Lord, may we be repentant of that, beginning with me, to be more willing to serve longer hours, to do more for your kingdom, for the sake of lost souls, most of all for your glory. Give us hope even as we began our service by singing, we are on the Lord's side. If we're on your side, we're on the winning side. Help us to fight and pray and serve for your glory. We ask all of this in the blessed and strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.